We're going to dismiss the children at this time, four years old to fourth grade, if you want to head on out the back. Be in prayer for them today as they study the resurrection of Jesus Christ, such a uh, linchpin in all of Christian doctrine. So pray that they'll understand and believe. While they're going, if you take your Bibles this morning and turn to that passage that we started in, Micah chapter 5. Those of you who are here regularly recognize the major hole that happens when people are sick. And uh, I usually don't have this much time. We're barely getting started, so uh, I won't make any comments about long or short sermons. All right. Micah chapter 5. As we... uh, As we come to this Christmas season, having just gone through uh, a difficult election and political season, it should cause us, well, it should really bring out the truth of Christmas in a way uh, that is much more special to us and much more, uh, well, causes us to anticipate what has been promised to us. Unfortunately, in politics now, we find ourselves voting against the other candidate and the damage that we believe they would do to the country more than voting for who we would think would be the the best candidate and do wonderful things for our country. And uh, that is just not the case when it comes to this leader that is prophesied in Scripture. And I want to look at a combination of three different passages this morning that speak to the kingdom, Christmas and the kingdom. The kingdom that is, is before us, the kingdom that we are in, and yet, in another real sense, will be a part of. And so, I hope this morning as we see this kingdom that is spoke about through this baby that will come to Bethlehem, that your hearts will be warm, but not only that, you will find yourself living in anticipation for that day when Christ is physically king on earth and that we are in his presence. Micah chapter 5 Uh, You have to understand the context here in Micah. Micah is a prophet who is prophesying during a very difficult time in Israel's history. He is prophesying things that are hard to hear. And in fact, if you look at Micah chapter 5 and verse 1, it says this, Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. That is not talking about Jesus. That's talking about their current leader. They were surrounded by uh, the enemy, and the enemy was coming in, and the, the idea is here is that they bound the hands of the leader behind his back, and they are just pummeling him in the face, and he has to take it helplessly. This is the picture of Israel in this time period. They are under the judgment of God that it has been prophesied that God would judge them for their idolatry and for their disobedience. And God is allowing the Babylonians, the Assyrians, others to come in and really uh, just run roughshod right over Israel. And here Micah is really prophesying about what is going to happen to uh, the leadership of Israel by those who at that time of his prophecy prophecy were camped right outside the gates. And so it's a discouraging time. But however, what I want to see is that verse 2 comes in and is just like God who does not pronounce judgment without pronouncing mercy and hope. 
There is hope for those who believe in God. There's hope for those who follow the Word of God. Think, Think about this. We're at a time in our nation where there's great fear There's fear about what's going to happen in the next four years, fear about what's going to happen in the next week. There's fear on this campus about what's going to, are we going to be able to keep school open? Are we going to have to close school? Am I going to get sick? Uh, There's this fear, but I don't think it is in any way, it it pales in comparison to what the people in Micah chapter 5 were dealing with. They were looking at losing their life. They were looking at their country being totally obliterated, being taken into slavery, And so in that context, here comes this prophecy of a ruler. Micah 5, verse 2, But thou Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Ephrathah is an older name for the city of Bethlehem. It says, Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me he that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Jump down to verse 4 of Micah Five, and it talks about what this leader will do. It says, And he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. And they shall abide, for now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth, and this man shall be the peace. These are prophecies of this, this person that is going to come from Bethlehem. So this morning I want to see the beauty of Christmas for those in the context of Micah, but also for those uh, for, for us in today's context as well. You cannot truly enjoy the message of Christmas without understanding who this baby, what, what was prophesied about this baby and what he is going to become. A celebration of Christmas should be a celebration of a person, Jesus Christ, the hope of the past, the hope of the present, And of course, our hope as we look into the future. Israel's hope was always in a coming Messiah. Ever ever from the beginning, even from Abraham, God had promised a Messiah, a deliverer, someone who would come and would rule in peace and in majesty for Israel. And it is interesting, as I read and study the context of many of the Old Testament prophecies They are coming to Israel, but they're coming to Israel in a time of great despair, a time of frustration, a time of idolatry, a time of judgment. These people, like I said, are not worried about getting sick per se. They're worried whether they will live and whether Israel will even last as a nation. Micah, of course, is contemporary to Isaiah. Isaiah at the same time is prophesying. And so let's let's look at Isaiah chapter 9. I'm sure you're, you know these verses. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 speaks of the child that will be coming from Bethlehem. You know these words well. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. But then it says this, and, and over the next two verses it describes from Micah that is to come as to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been of old from everlasting, this child is born. This child will be born and, and, and a son will be given. And what about him? It says this, the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David 
upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment, with justice from henceforth forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. What I want us to do this morning is to look at these two passages, what it says about the coming king, and then to look at the coming of that king and really the, the, the inauguration of this king on earth. And we'll jump into the Gospel of John to do so, but I don't want you to look ahead. I want you to see the exciting part yet. So here is this, here's this prophecy of a coming ruler. And the prophecy of the coming ruler was given. Why was it given to the children of Israel? What are they to do with this? Right? They're living in fear. They're wondering if they're going to be able to make it through the year. What are they to do with this prophecy? So what? Don't you realize we need help now? A baby's not going to come and help us. And even if this prophecy had been fulfilled the next day, what would a baby do for us? What's, what's the purpose? And you know, I think oftentimes we as Christians, if we're not careful, as we read God's word, we recognize that it sounds great, especially if you're reading in the prophecies of, of Jesus returning for his second advent, the book of Revelation, these wonderful things that Jesus will accomplish when he comes to earth. And we say, well, that's nice, but what about today? I mean, did God not realize what we were dealing with in 2020 when he wrote this stuff? We need something for today. But here's the idea. Micah is giving prophecy of the coming deliverer. And the children of Israel were then called to believe it. And belief is always characterized by what? Action. You cannot say you believe something and not act upon it. Of course, if you still believe in Santa Claus, or I say it this way, if you believe in Santa Claus, you're going to act on it, right? Okay, this is a bad analogy. We'll just move on from that. It was in chapel here that I was speaking, and I spoke about these things, and I had a parent approach me later and say, I don't appreciate that you just stole the magic of Christmas from my son. I said, well, it is high school chapel. I mean, come on. All right. So I'm sorry if I've ruined, you know, if the bell doesn't ring for you anymore, I'm sorry. All right. Uh, what is... Belief. Belief, this, this belief in this coming Messiah would have produced hope. And hope in the, in the Scripture, it's interesting, hope in the Scripture is not used in the same way we use hope today. We use hope today kind of as a wish. But hope in the, in the scriptural context of the word is a confident expectation. So as they received the prophecy from Micah, if they believed, if they believed, they would live in confident expectation which, by the way, is laid out, we use the word obedience. Confident expectation is when I am so convinced of what has been said that I will rearrange my life to live for that in expectation. So as we celebrate Christmas, what is the hope of Christmas? Right? The hope of Christmas is not that we can be together as family. The hope of Christmas is not that 2021 will just be, you know, if the pendulum swing that way, man, it's going to swing back and we're going to have the best year ever. That is not the hope of Christmas. The hope of Christmas is something that when you understand, you believe, and that belief then changes the way you live into something called obedience. Obedience to the revealed word of God. So it's interesting in Micah chapter 6, 
we have a very clear statement, a, a, a clear command, right? Ma Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. Micah continues to prophesy and he says, He, that is God, hath shown thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with thy God? Now here's the key. If you believe in Micah's prophecy, if you believe in Isaiah's prophecy, the hope is a confident expectation that says, okay, I believe the words of God and therefore I will obey the words of God. So even at a time of great struggle and, and, and frustration and depression and, and, and uncertainty in Israel, God says, listen, I want you to do what is right. Do justly. The word justly is also the word for righteousness. Do what is right. Love mercy. You know, it's easy to, love, to, to want to do what's right and then to kill everybody who's not doing right. But God says to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. I think we could take those exact words and find in the New Testament the teaching that says, if you believe that Christ is going to return a second time, how are you to live? And I think we could find all throughout Paul's writing and Peter's writing, the New Testament, that it's, it's to do what is right, to obey the revealed word of God, to love mercy, and to walk before God in a humble and obedient way. So think about that in the context of what's happening here in Israel. God's plan, though, is specific and direct. God names the city from which this great deliverer is to come from. This would be recognized in Jesus Christ by those who were familiar with God's word. It's interesting. Jesus came, was born in Bethlehem. Did anything happen? I mean, was this, I mean he was born in a lowly stall. It, I, I doubt it was on December 25th. Uh, but he was born in a, in a lowly stall. Mary and Joseph were not popular people. There was no paparazzi following them. There was no internet. There was no sharing, right? Jesus was just born in a lowly... Was there anything that would have made it special? What about a giant star, right? And so it's interesting that, that God gives very specific revelation here that Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem. It's announced... To the shepherds, and they come, but where are the wise men? And I want to say wise men, I mean the wise men of Israel. Where were the scribes? Where were those who knew the word of God, who saw the star, but refused to look into it? You know what they were, you know what they were doing? They were sitting in church. Now, the synagogue, studying God's word, arguing God's word trying to figure out exactly what it meant. And while they're doing that, guess what? Kings from other countries who simply read and believed came. Shepherds simply heard and believed and came. And the religious leaders refused. Is that any different than today? If God has revealed to us his plan and has said, this is how you're to live in anticipation of my return, what are we doing about it? You see, there were, there were believing Jews. I love the story of Anna and Simeon, right? Who are Anna and Simeon? They're these people that God had, they had lived 
righteous lives. They, they knew God's word. They obeyed God's word. They longed in their heart for the prophecies to be fulfilled. God came to them and said, listen, I will bless you in such a way that you will see, you will see the Messiah before you die. Right? He said that to Simeon. And so Simeon, Simeon's just waiting. He knows that this baby, no matter where it's born, has to come to the temple, right? And so he's waiting at the temple. And the day that Jesus is brought into the temple, Simeon approaches that child and and, and holds that child and says, now I can die. I have lived my life in anticipation. I have walked righteously before God, and he has shown me his Christ. Anna, same thing. She's waiting. She's looking. She's organizing her daily life in anticipation of the promised child. Right? You see it? There was a change of the daily living in the confident expectation that the prophecy would be fulfilled. Let me ask you this. What have you done this week that shows that your life has been changed or is, is being organized around the confident expectation that Jesus is returning? What are you doing? What, what, was, what was your week like? Did it have anything in it that showed an eager anticipation of belief? Now, I'm not, listen, we're not saying we go out on a hillside and cross our legs and sing kumbaya until, you know, something happens. It's not what the New Testament teaches. But it does teach us to be fervently sharing the gospel. It does teach us to be living according to God's word and organizing our lives so that we can be salt and light in our community. It calls us as believers to be together, to worship together. Are these things that you're doing in anticipation of Christ's return? I hope Jesus returns during church. So all the people that... No, I'm just kidding. No, I mean, how wonderful would it be if Jesus returned today, now, finding us, following through, rejoicing in his resurrection as a group of believers, knowing that because he is risen, he is returning. That goes for people online, too. How great would it be if he came during the service? God's plan is not, though, just a place. It's not just Bethlehem. It's not just Israel. His plan is Jesus Christ. This is what makes Christmas Christmas. You've seen the bumper sticker that says, Keep Christ in Christmas, right? And uh, I, I like that. Then... I don't know if they know this, but, you know, some people do Xmas. When I was a kid, I was like, oh, those pagans, Xmas. They're trying to take Christ out of Christmas. Did you know that, that every Greek letter in the alphabet represents a word? And the X in the Greek alphabet represents Christ. Ah, no. <laughs> All right, is that true? Uh, well, the Bereans would have searched daily to find out whether those things were so. So I do not call myself a Greek expert, but uh, I believe so. We'll have Pat let you know next week. All right. Listen to the description of this person, though. Listen to the description of this person. Born in Bethlehem, right? Born to do God's will. He says, unto me. He's to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth were from of old. This means somebody who has been associated with you in the past. This is somebody who's in the past of Israel. It's not a new person to Israel. It's somebody who has been involved with Israel from the beginning. But then it says from everlasting. This would not be Moses. It would not be Abraham. This would be much more than that. 
it would it wouldn't be just a mere man it would be somebody that was eternal it would have to be god this prophecy is 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 telling of the incarnation what 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 do they do with this in 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 micah's time well they endure difficulties looking forward to the promise of god they take hope that the affliction that they were now in would not be permanent but that there's a coming deliverer by the way you can read these same truths in the new testament in romans the affliction of our present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us do you believe that and you see christmas tells us that if he came once he will honor his word and come again and don't forget that the affliction of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory that's coming walk by faith obey god's word allow god's word to be that which shapes your daily decisions Jesus Christ is the hope, not just for Micah and those of Israel, but for us as well. Listen to, take your Bibles if you're not in, in, in Isaiah now, and go to Isaiah chapter 9, and, and, and recognize that this child that is going to be born in Bethlehem to the Jews is so much greater than Israel. I, I tell you what, I would, I would encourage you to just spend time meditating on these two verses. Think about them in your own life. Think about them in the context of John chapter 18, which we'll read later. And just allow God's word to, to teach you who Jesus is to you as a believer. Verse 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. The government, the rule of the nations will be on Christ. I am more thankful for that today than at any other time in my life. That the rule of true government, that the rule of the government of the, of the city and the land which I am a citizen of, sits on the shoulders of the unchanging Jesus Christ. The government shall be on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Unlike the ungodly Ahaz, who was ruling at this time of Isaiah's prophecy, this king would not need a council. His council would be without help from man. It would be elevated above man. Who can give unto this counselor that he will say that I have received from them? No, this is the wonderful counselor. In the past four years, have you ever wondered who's giving our president counsel? Right? Of course, with Donald Trump, the idea was probably a lot of people, but he just kind of goes on his own, right? People loved him for it. People hated him for it. Jesus is not that way. Jesus' counsel is perfect, and no one can add to it. He is the wonderful counsel, but he's also the mighty God. The word mighty here is, is a word for military. This ruler from Bethlehem would be one who accomplishes great military exploits. And I would just tell you this. Jesus today in our country and around the world is accomplishing some massive military exploits. You see, because our warfare as believers is not against flesh and blood, is it? What is it against? Oh, something much stronger. Principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world. And I'm telling you this morning as the word of God is preached all over the globe, our mighty God is accomplishing great things. 
the mighty God. He's the everlasting Father. This would not be an unapproachable king. This would be the everlasting, unchanging, and always approachable Father. I don't know what kind of father you may have had. But I tell you what, my, I know my father desperately wanted me to come to him at all times. In fact, we sometimes would abuse that. We'd prance right into his doctor's office through the back door. It didn't matter if we were covered from head to toe in grass and dirt. We'd go into his office and we'd raid his drawers looking for food and candy. And of course, some days the drug reps would bring like amazing meals for his office staff. And we would watch for those days. And we, four or five of us, would just, I mean, we'd say hi to the secretaries. And they weren't allowed to let people move around the office. But hey, we were his kids, right? We would just go right in. And my dad would tell us, hey, guys, come today. We've got Outback. <laughs> right? And we'd go in his office and on his back wall, he'd have like this amazing spread. My dad wanted us to approach him. Now think about this. This king who has the government on his shoulders of all nations, who is the mighty God accomplishing great military exploits, telling you, hey, I've got Outback in my office. Come on, come to my office, come to me. Come. That's our God. That's this Jesus. He'll be the prince of peace, it says. He'll bring peace, but this peace will not be like the treaties of other nations, it will be true and lasting peace. As a result of his wisdom and might and love, this coming Messiah would bring absolute peace to his subjects. And I love the next part. Oh, I love the next part of these verses. Look what it says. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. There is no diminishing of the effects of the rule of Jesus Christ. We look out and we say, oh man, the days are getting darker. And in fact, God's word tells us that in the end times, perilous times shall come. And we look at that and, and, and we focus on the peril and we focus on the degradation of society. But the truth is that this king he will not only, his government won't cease and his peace won't cease. It says of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. His kingdom is growing. And that peace, that peace between God and man is also increasing. And I hope that you would be able today to say, as a believer, I know this to be true. Peace in my heart today between me and God is increasing. You see, when believers are faced with times like Micah was, when believers are faced with times like 2020, what is it that comes out? It's the rule and the peace that comes from the rule of Christ. It was interesting, we, I mentioned this in a, in a sermon a long time ago. Right at the very beginning of the coronavirus, one man got up and said, it's, you know, Christians are the problem. They're not treating it seriously. And, and what he was trying to bring out was this, and, and, and I want to be careful how I say it. What he was trying to bring out was this. 
They don't care so much about their health and they don't care so much about these things. Their focus is on something, in his word, that doesn't exist. They believe in a God. They believe in heaven. And that makes them bad people for coronavirus. Right? And and we all say, absolutely right. Hallelujah. Right? And I'm not saying we don't look at this as a serious thing. We don't... We don't take it seriously. We don't take, I'm not saying that. I'm saying when we recognize who our God is and what he is accomplishing, there is something that is increasing in our lives as the world is hopeless and can't figure out things and struggles and is frustrated and blame shifts and points the fingers. Christians should just kind of rise to the top as people that live in peace and security. Why? Because there's a promise Then there's a belief in that promise. And that belief is characterized by hopeful expectation, which changes our priorities, changes the things that we love, changes the way that we live. And we know that this world is not our home. We start living for that government that is increasing in the peace that comes with his reign in us. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end. It says, then upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it, to establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth even forever. This is a wonderful time. I think, this, this, I think to, be, to be true to this passage, we have to recognize that this passage doesn't just speak of what Jesus will do here in John 16 or 18. We'll get there. But also that there is true prophecy for the children of Israel. There is coming a time when Jesus will sit on the throne of Israel. We call it the millennium. We believe that there are promises specifically in this given to Israel that will be fulfilled in the millennium. But we also believe that these promises are for you and for me. Because they speak of our God and our Christ. Is it going to happen, though? I mean, when Micah gave this prophecy, it was probably 400 years out of Jesus being born in Bethlehem. Did that change the truth of it? Did that change the expectant living? It shouldn't. They knew it was coming, and they should live for it. When will Christ return? You haven't bought the book, 2,021 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 2021? Good. I'm glad. We don't know when it's coming, but we do know who he is. We do know what his promise is. His promise is that he will return. Right? Are you living for that return? By the way, it says at the I love this. It says at the end of that verse, the zeal of the Lord shall accomplish this. Right? Um, it was interesting. So last night. I went and picked up my daughters and was taking them home, and we had forgotten to turn the Netflix DVD in by 9 o'clock. And it was right about, not Netflix, uh, Redbox, yeah. We watched The Secret Garden, and so Bethany said, get it in and get it in before 9 so we don't have to pay a second day on it. And so I, yeah, I'm going to drop it off while I pick them up, but I was listening to the Coastal game on the radio. I got distracted. Uh... So right about nine-ish, the girls go, hey, Dad, what's this? No! So I zealously drove to Redbox. 
the word my daughter used wasn't zealous, uh, but they're like, Dad, Dad, come on, come on. You're, I, Gracie's getting her license this week, Lord willing, or maybe Lord willing not. <laughs> Caroline's back there going, Dad, you are not being a good example to Gracie. When I am zealous about something, I am not going to be stopped. Unless, of course, there's lots of resistance. Can you imagine God being zealous about something? Do you think if God is zealous about something, it will be accomplished? The zeal of the Lord will perform this thing. And then we had read for us from Galatians, in the fullness of the time. Rome taxation, Herod, all these things are going on. Nothing can stop God from accomplishing his In fact, he takes the foolish plans of men that would be against him, and he just plays Rubik's Cube with it and says, ha-ha, see, that's what I planned. It works perfectly. The zeal of the Lord will perform these things. So, so think about this. This child that is born who will have no Loss of kingdom, but his kingdom will increase and the peace of his kingdom will increase. This is a promise that God says, my passion will accomplish this. Do you believe that? I mean, this is partially why we meet today, right? This is part of who we are as believers. God is zealous about bringing his government to all the hearts of men and tells us to go and cast the seed of the gospel on people's hearts. And allow him to create life. We are a part of that. The passion of the Lord is involved in your salvation. In bringing you peace. Take your Bibles now and let's turn to John 18. We've fast-forwarded a number of years. And now Jesus is standing before Pilate at a sham of a trial, right? We know a little bit about that. Here, I, I, I would love to see an artist's rendering of the king of kings standing before Pilate being questioned. How would you draw that? And some of the words that he says, you just know that Jesus is holding back the full power of the universe. And Pilate's like, what are you going to do about it? (laughs) I know if I would have been Jesus, Pilate would have been gone. Puff of smoke, right? (laughs) Thankfully, Jesus is not like that. Look at verse 33. Pilate entered the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? I don't, have this, I don't care about this kind of stuff. I'm not a Jew. I don't have any dealings with you people in this way. Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, 
My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Oh, I love that. Here's why I love it. Because when I read Isaiah chapter 9, I don't always see Isaiah chapter 9 happening. When we look at the culture of America and we see how far we've gone away from our Judeo-Christian roots, I don't see the increase of government. I don't see the increase of peace. In fact, I see terrible times for my kids and grandkids. But wait a second. That's not my kingdom. That's not my citizenship. Jesus said, my kingdom's not of this world. I am a king, but I am not a king in this sense. He says, if I were a king, my people would fight for me. And just think about it. Pilate maybe had a couple thousand Roman soldiers. Jesus, just a few days earlier, had walked up to Jerusalem and had tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of people shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he. With a word, he could have assembled these people and they could have trampled Pilate. Jesus says, no, that's not why I exist. I don't exist to free people from Roman oppression. I I exist for a government, government that will bring peace, that will increase regardless of who's in power on earth. I am a king. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus claims to be Israel's king. Here, he says that he is a king. Verse 37, he says, Thou sayest, I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world. Jesus is the exalted king of life. He's standing here at a trial, but actually he's standing here at his inauguration as king. Jesus, as he stands before Pilate, is about to be lifted up, not by a nation, not by its subjects, but by a cross. He's about to be crowned, not with a golden crown, but with a crown of thorns. And yet the blood that would run down from those thorns would be shed to free his subjects from something so much more powerful than Rome or the Jewish leaders. You see, all those Romans and all those Jewish leaders that day, today are dead. But those to whom Christ is king that were standing there that day are alive. They're living. This is the king of life. And by laying down his his body in death, he frees his subjects to something called eternal life. My kingdom is not of this world, he says. It has no national borders. It is not connected to earthly politics. It has no ties to the evil system of the world, the princes of this world and their ways. No, this kingdom has a king that is a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, and the prince of peace. It's not physical in nature. It is spiritual. 
It is eternal. This king rules a kingdom where he creates and then regenerates his own subjects. This king will come and dwell within his people. He will transform their hearts and lives of every single one of his subjects. His reign over his people will continue and it will increase. The kingdom is increasing. The kingdom is characterized by peace and we stand here today as testaments of that. By the way, the subjects of this kingdom walk by faith. Just like the people in Micah's day who believed the word of God, yet wouldn't see its fulfillment for over 400 years, organized their daily living until they passed by faith. We stand having received promises of Jesus' second return. And the truth is, or the question is really, will you believe or do you believe? And you don't even need to answer it with your mouth. Because the truth is, if you believe, you hear his voice, you call upon his name. He now lives within you and he is changing you. And the increase of his lordship in your life is growing. It's called sanctification. And by the way, when he's Lord, there is an increase of the peace that passes all understanding. This kingdom cannot be threatened by American politics. It can't be threatened by moral decline. It can't be threatened by voting machines. This is an everlasting kingdom. This is why his his subjects do not fight with swords and spears. His people fight with the word of God. And they fight to free men from the bondage of sin by giving to them the glorious gospel and the truth of this king. Jesus turns to Pilate in verse 37. He says, you said it right that I am a king. To this end, look at this phrase, to this end was I born, for this cause came I into the world. To this end was I born, for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth, heareth my voice. And then Pilate said, I can't hear your voice. He didn't use those words, though. What did he say? What is truth? What is truth? Fake news, people. Big deal. Listen to the claim of Jesus Christ here. He says, yes, Pilate, I am a king, and this is why I was born. I was born to create and rule a spiritual kingdom. Yes, Pilate, I am king. This is why I left heaven to come into this world. This is an amazing statement of his humanity and his deity. He said, he goes, yes, to this end was I born. But then he says, for this reason, I came into the world. How many of you could say that? I organized my birth for this purpose. None of us had anything to do with our birth. We were just there, not Jesus. You see, in the fullness of the time, God sent forth his son. Made of a woman, born of a woman, born under the law. It's a statement of his deity. It's a statement of his humanity. No man can say this. 
By the way, to say to this, Jesus may have been saying, look, to this, this sham trial, this crucifixion that's about to happen, to this, this is why I was born. I think it goes beyond that, though, to this idea of him being a king, and he says to this, this is why I came. I came to become king of kings, Lord of lords. How does a person become a citizen of this king? How, how do you take this king as your king? How does this king take you as his subject? Look with me at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, is how, it, it, there's a verse that teaches us how people can get into this kingdom where the government will only increase and the peace of that king, the prince of peace, will increase in your life. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 12 says, 12 says, Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into what? The kingdom of his dear Son. And then verse 14 tells you the mode of translation in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sin. You see, it is through redemption. It is through the death, burial, and resurrection of this king. It is through the forgiveness of sins that this king provides to all who will hear his voice. Do you believe? No, don't. it's not this foolish idea of do you hang on to a fanciful wish about Christmas? Does the bell still ring for you, garbage? No, this is like, uh, have you heard the call of God in your life? Have you been redeemed? Have you been forgiven of your sin? Is there an increase of the rulership of Jesus in your heart? And is there a peace that God gives you that you cannot explain in difficult times, but you, you know it's there, and you experience that peace, and it leads you to Christ, and it increases? Do you believe? You see, look what he says to Pilate in John 37. He says, Thou sayest I am a king, to this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. And Pilate didn't hear it. There's an identifying thing about the king and his subjects, and it is truth. In a, in a day and age where everybody... I'm having a conversation with my brother. We're talking about churches. We're talking about mask wearing. We're talking about the conscience. And, and I'm just... He's my younger brother, so I have to be like the devil's advocate prodding him. you know. And he's saying, well, what's the safest thing to do? And so instead of, you know, talking about safety, I say, who gets to decide what's safe, right? And anytime we, we, we just, what we've done is in this postmodern idea, we've just, we question words. What do words mean? Who gets to tell us what is safe? Who gets to tell us what is healthy? Who gets to tell us what we should do? You, you're a scientist. Look at this scientist. He says the opposite. You, you're a politician. Okay, uh, 
right? You're a pastor. What do you know about science? Who gets to tell us what is the truth? Tell you what, as believers, we rise above all of that because we have the truth. The truth lives within us. The truth guides us in daily decisions, even when it comes to issues of conscience and mask wearing, right? And my, by the way, my brother and I probably don't agree on everything, and yet what do we do? We recognize that the truth supersedes all of that. We take what has been revealed to us, and that is our common ground as Christian brothers, and we move forward having different preferences. And you know what? There's peace. The, the identifying aspect of the people of this king's kingdom is they hear the truth, they believe the truth, and they live the truth. They're not identified by color. They're not identified by accent. They're not identified by clothing or physical marks. They're at, they're, they, they're, they are identified because they hear the truth, they believe the truth, and they live the truth. That's the kingdom of God. Remember in John chapter 10, we were there not too long ago. Jesus stood in front of the Jews and he said, My sheep hear my voice. And they follow me, and I give unto them what? The kingdom of God. Actually, it says eternal life. I give unto them eternal life. Isn't that the kingdom of God? Isn't that the kind of kingdom this king rules? I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. You see, God came to us, very God of very God, came to man as Jesus. He, God, is the everlasting Father. God is the Prince of Peace. God is the one of whom his government shall never end. In fact, he is taking the human governments of this world and he is working them in his sovereignty to bring about the expected end of what he has promised. And when he is God in your life, when you recognize it and you believe it, he lives within you to change you. And what does the change look like? The change looks like an increase of the kingdom of God in his kingship in your life. And what does it feel like? It's an increase of peace. Not an absence of struggle, an increase of peace. I hope today that at the end of a very difficult year, as a believer, you are in a position of great peace. You may not agree with people in this room about stuff. You may not agree with the national narrative. You may agree with the national narrative on all these things, but I tell you what, when God lives within, that all takes a very secondary seat to our true citizenship and the true peace that passes all this stuff. This is kingdom increasing in your heart. Let's pray.